Welcome to the Wealth and Wellness Podcast with me, Kaylee Boisvert. I specialize in helping people to achieve their financial goals. I have a love for all things numbers, and I am passionate about financial literacy. My goal is to spark healthy and positive conversations around wealth and investment and create a world where nobody is limited by their financial situation. But wealth is just one piece in the equation of living our best lives. So join me as we explore both wealth and wellness topics. From your net worth to your self-worth, get ready to take confident action. Hello, this is Kaylee, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Wealth and Wellness Podcast. Um, Today, I wanted to talk all about breaking down the types of investments. Um, So investing is an important means to growing your wealth. And as I've talked about, you know, on all these money related episodes, it really is a big piece of the conversation that investing is an important piece of that. Um, If we're wanting to build wealth, grow wealth, then investing is going to definitely play a role in that um, for the most part. So I wanted to spend some time actually breaking down um, the types of investments. Um, Investment professionals often are quick to use, you know, industry jargon. And we we talk about them just so sort of easily in in our day-to-day conversation, but we don't necessarily do a good job of breaking them down sometimes. And um, oftentimes, you know, we we do a better job of overcomplicating things, I think. So hopefully this is going to be a good way... um, sort of way to break it down just to make sense of some of these terms that you might hear thrown out when we talk about, you know, stocks and bonds and mutual funds and ETFs. And and so hopefully you can kind of, it's almost like a breaking down, sort of defining each of those concepts just to get it more clear in your mind of what each of those are and some of the differences. Um, Also, just so to start out, I wanted to say that, you know, none of what I'm talking about is intended to be... um, taken as actual investment advice. Um, It's really just about education this episode. So it's education, breaking down these concepts, making sense of them. If I do use any specific examples of companies, usually those are just the first ones that pop into my mind. Um, It's not me um, giving you a recommendation to buy that that stock or, or that idea or anything like that. It's just, you know, what's, it's what comes quickly to mind and what maybe I think that you as a listener are familiar with. Um, yes, because investment advice really, it's it's specifically tailored to your, your needs, your time horizon, your risk tolerance. So I can't sit here on a podcast and just sort of push out to you, you know, how I think you should be invested in what you should be invested in either, because obviously, you know, there's no blanket recommendation I would ever be able to give for anyone. Um, you're all very unique. So the actual, you know, going through the process of finding out what investments make sense for you, it does, you know, entail a lot more of the work and and going deep into your unique situation. So these are just, you know, it's information. Let's break down these concepts. Let's make sense of them. So when you're hearing them day to day or when you're seeing things, um, you know, ab- about investing that some of these, you know, concepts maybe just make a little bit more sense. Okay, so when it comes to investment options, I like to break it down into three categories. I sort of see them there being these three buckets, um, one being cash and equivalents. 
And then another one being fixed income or bonds. So again, I'm going to use those words interchangeably. So fixed income and bonds are the same thing. Um, and then the last bucket being equities or stocks. So again, we like to have lots of different names for the same thing. So stocks, equities, shares, um, again, meaning the same thing. So I want to break down each of those three buckets. Um, and I'm also, you know, these are also I'm talking about in order of increasing risk. So generally when it comes to investing, when we talk about risk and potential returns, um, essentially as you move up the potential risk spectrum, that's where you move up on the potential for making more as a higher potential return. So we can't really have, you know, low, no risk, high return. That's just not realistic to expect when it comes to investing. So if you want low to no risk, you're looking at a lower potential return. If you're willing to take on a little bit more risk, you're moving up the scale um, and higher potential returns as a result. So let's start out by talking about cash and equivalents. Um, many people would not really even think of this as a type of investment, but it very much is and it can serve a variety of purposes. So Cash and equivalents are ideal when you're looking for a low to no risk investment solution. So maybe you have a specific need for the funds coming up and you know the exact amount you'll require, then you likely want to use a cash and equivalents type investment if you have that short term time horizon. And usually short term when we're talking about that in the investing world, it's, you know, one year or less. So if we're talking about weeks or months, then those situations would likely be where cash and equivalents are most suitable. So let's say you're in the market looking for a house actively right now, you have your down payment saved up, um, you don't wanna take any risk with that, right? You don't want the up and down fluctuation because you're right now actively searching. You wanna know what that down payment you have will be. So instead of just sitting in your bank account and not really having it earn anything, if we're looking in this cash and equivalence bucket as investments, your cash is maybe earning a little bit more. Um, it's also a tool for portfolio allocation. So um, again, it's it's a tool. It's not necessarily a mistake to have um, cash sitting in your portfolio when it comes to your retirement funds or anything like that. Um, if markets are volatile and you're concerned about the market outlook, then cash can serve an important tool where you can have that sort of sitting on the sidelines and you can allocate it and have it ready to put to work if maybe the markets are going to pull back or things like that. So again, we can't predict the markets and the results of the market with certainty, but if you're feeling that way, a little bit uneasy about the outlook and what's to come, then having an allocation of your portfolio in cash and equivalents is a great tool that's then ready to go and redeploy if things do pull back. So that could look like, okay, 5% of your portfolio is in cash or 10%. Or if you're very concerned, maybe it's higher than that. Again, it's very personal and would probably need more discussion. But these are just examples of how, you know, cash and equivalents can very much be considered an investment as well, that we're looking to do something with it coming up or we're looking to put it to work as well. Um, so what are cash and equivalents then? It would include um, just cash in like a savings account and an investment account. Um, when we talk about this type of investment, 
you know, it's, it's high, like high quality, low, no risk, and it's going to provide you with quick access to your money. So again, in that example of you need it coming up, um, for that down payment, or maybe it's buying a new car or something like that, you need that money quickly. It doesn't necessarily then have to be tied up if it's in a cash and equivalence type of investment. Um, relatively low rates of return on these type of investments compared to other investments because there is this low to no risk. So what we're talking about when we're saying cash and equivalence, in this bucket, we have things like money market funds, high interest savings funds or high interest savings accounts, they're sometimes called, and guaranteed investment certificates. So that's GICs. And again, this is coming from a Canadian perspective too. So keep that in mind. Um, so those types of investments, again, they're essentially low, no risk, like a GIC is a guaranteed investment certificate. So there's no risk. But on the other side of things, when you put money into a GIC, you are, are actually locked in for the term of the GIC unless it's one that you're able to um, access prior to maturity. But if it's just a, um, you know, general GIC and how they're usually created is that you're locked in for the term. So if you buy a one-year GIC, there is no risk. You're guaranteed that um, interest rate that is set at the beginning of your investment, but you do have to have it in that investment until the maturity date. So again, great for if you have a targeted goal of when that might come due and having the cash come due at that time. If you need some more flexibility, something like a high interest savings fund would be a little bit better. And a high interest savings fund, you can think of it almost as um, just a, a place to hold your cash in that's going to offer you higher return than it just sitting as cash. Because when we think of money sitting as cash in our checking accounts, for instance, at the bank, it's not earning any sort of interest. Um, so you want to make sure it's in like a high interest savings account, which is also sometimes just like a fund type product um, or a savings account at the bank that's offering a higher rate of interest. So it's being mindful of um, that cash because, you know, you don't want it necessarily earning nothing. Like I said, in the example of our checking account, and if there's a high balance there and it's earning nothing, there's probably some other products that you can put it in to earn a little bit more of a return, something like these cash and equivalents we're talking about. So Keep in mind for cash and equivalents, the rates will be reflective of interest rates and where those are at. So in an, a really low interest rate environment, you'll you can expect, unfortunately, very low rates of return on your cash in these sorts of high interest savings funds or GICs. So in the environment we're in right now, we're in a very low interest rate environment. What that means is GICs, high interest savings, they're offering very low rates. We're talking maybe like 1%, maybe a couple percent if you're willing to do a GIC that's locked in for a bit longer, like a three or four or five year. So, you know, people don't really love that, right? We want to be getting a little bit more on our cash. And because rates are so low, if we're talking about only a percent or just over, um, it is very frustrating because, um, keep in mind that there's also inflation at work and inflation, for the most part, we use inflation rates of, you know, 2%. We say a 2% annual inflation. Again, it fluctuates and it can be different amounts. But if that's the case, then these um, cash and equivalents only yielding 1% or one and a half or, um, you know, 
close to two or not even quite two, then we might not even be outpacing inflation. We might actually have our money being eroded as a result. And again, that can be very frustrating, but keep in mind that it is it is sort of in line or in check with where we are with our interest rate environment. So yes, we want those higher rates on our cash. Um, we want to be earning more on those cash balances for having it sit there in like low, no risk investments. But at the same time, in a low rate environment, all the rates are sort of low across the board. So if you hold a mortgage on your house, for instance, it also means or you benefit from having that low interest rate on your house. So if you wish, you know, be careful for what you wish for, because if we wish for those higher rates of return on these cash and equivalent type investments, that is going to mean rates would have to move up and all rates move up together. So it would be, you know, mortgage rates would have to move up rates on your on your loans or line of credit if you hold any of those would move up as well so again not ideal and we don't like to see not getting much of a return in our cash but on the flip side it does benefit you in other ways if you hold things like a mortgage and whatnot if you don't then you're probably like yes i still want those higher rates if you have absolutely no no sort of debts or anything like that so again though it is frustrating it is a matter of you know where interest rates are at and that's generally where we're going to see these rates trade around okay so now let's move up the risk scale slightly and we're going to talk about bonds so i broke them down into kind of those three categories so the cash and equivalents then we have the bonds then we have equity so let's talk about bonds a bond is an investment um, that involves lending your money to either government or a corporate borrower. An example of how this would look for a corporate borrower. So let's use an example. I'm going to use Apple because it's a company that many of us are familiar with. I would say anyone listening to this podcast probably knows or is familiar with Apple. So let's say Apple is looking to expand their manufacturing and they need to raise some money to do so. So they can choose to issue a bond. They go to the market and they say, okay, we have this bond. Um, it's a five-year bond paying a 3% coupon. And you might, as the investor, say, you know what? I know this company. I really like the company. Know it. I want to participate. So I'm going to give them $5,000 in exchange for this 3% coupon over the five years. And so in, over the five years, it's going to pay you that 3% each year. Usually it's based on semi-annual payments. So divide that sort of in half. And then at the end of the term, you're going to be paid back your original investment of 5000 So you loan it to them today, three or five years from now, you hold that investment. So you hold that Apple bond in your account. Then five years from now, you get your $5,000 back. And over the five-year time frame, you were paid your 3% coupon along the way. So that's great. But... In this example, you might be able to see some of the potential risk factors that exist when we invest in bonds. Because I said, you know, we move up the risk spectrum when we invest in bonds. So there are some risk risks to consider. And where are those risk potentials? Well, one is the risk that the company defaults. So in that case, they're not able to pay you back at the end of the term, right? So we're really banking on, hey, I gave you that $5,000. I made that coupon payment that you that I received from you so I got that three percent interest per year 
but at the end of the term now, you haven't paid me back my $5,000. So that sets the risk or the scary part. Um, And if this happens, and again, it doesn't necessarily happen all the time. If we think of, you know, big, large companies, there's probably not really a concern, especially maybe more in the shorter term that that's going to happen. But if this does happen, um, you know, it's good to know that as bondholders, you rank above stockholders. So if someone had some Apple shares versus someone who had some of the bonds, if the company is in default and having to pay back their creditors, bondholders are going to more likely or be higher up in line to receive all or a portion of that back. So if they're defaulting and they're paying back creditors, there's probably some ahead of the bondholders and then they're divvying up what's left. And then as the bondholder, maybe you get back, you know, half or a quarter of what you invested, but at least you're getting back partial. But of course you can also get back none. Maybe there's nothing left at the end of it. But um, that's why bonds though do rank at lower risk than stocks because they are ranked above shareholders. So if there is money left after the creditors ahead of you, it will be divided amongst the bond bondholders. So again, this is a potential risk. Again, it's it's based on the company and, you know, default obviously would mean that the company's really struggling and having challenges financially. So if it's a strong company that you're comfortable with um, and, and um, you know, a shorter term that you think it's, you know, more safe to invest and do so, then there's less of that default risk. But again, there is always that potential. We can't really fully ever remove that, especially when it comes to a corporation or a company. We don't know what's to come or what could happen. Um, So there is that risk. Again, it might not seem big in your mind, but it does exist. So it's not guaranteed. That's the reason it's not guaranteed. And now another risk or unknown in this example is based on that coupon rate. So when the bond came out, it might have been appealing because as mentioned, we're in really a low rate environment right now. So that 3% bond that they were offering right now seems like, meh, that's pretty good. You know, it's better than some of the GICs out there. It's a great company. Yeah, I'll take that Um, because I'm not really finding that other places or, or something like that, right? But what could happen in two to three years time or four years time if rates go up and Apple or similar companies are coming out with bonds that have higher coupons, higher than your 3%, then the price of your bond will go down because it's less appealing than some of the other bonds out there. So let's say Apple says, oh, we actually need some more money, you know, in three years time and rates have gone up. Well, now they're having to offer a higher rate or coupon on that bond for it to attract investors. So maybe then it's a 5% coupon. Well, you're still holding on to yours and it's 3%. It's not looking so attractive as these 5% bonds that are coming out. And because there's an active market for bonds, that's why that yours can be actively traded. You're holding it in your account. Maybe your intention was to hold to maturity, but still the price is going to move down, reflecting that, hey, your bond's not as great as these new ones coming out that have a higher rate on them. So um, again, it's that's another risk or um, potential for price movement on this type of investment. So again, if you're, if rates go up, and you're holding a bond, 
Um, so there's an inverse relationship between interest rates and bond prices as a result. So in that example, rates went up in a few years into the future from now. Now your bond went down because it's less appealing. And again, vice versa, if rates go down, your bond would go up in price and it would be more appealing if, if rates went down. And then a few years from now, you know, the new bond they release is only a 2%. Now your 3% bond looks more appealing and the price of it, the value is going to go up. So that's a little bit about bonds and some of the places where we can see, you know, why the value of them would move, why there's potential for them to have some places of, you know, risk or uncertainty. Those are sort of the places that that exists in these investments. Um, so again, they really are at the mercy of interest rates as well. So interest rates very much are going to affect bonds. If rates are really low, you're likely going to see bonds offering quite low rates. If rates go up, you'll usually see higher rate bonds coming out to the market. But again, if you are existing bondholder and rates go up, it's not necessarily appealing for you because that inverse relationship and your bond prices have now moved down because rates have moved up. So there is a diverse market of bonds to investment. So keeping in mind there's some risk associated with this type of investment, but less risk than stocks because bondholders do rank above shareholders when it comes to default. And return-wise, you know, similar to the cash and equivalents, bonds are influenced by interest rates. So again, we can't expect huge returns in this investment category right now when we're in a really low interest rate environment. Um, when investors are looking to buy a bond, um, there's a lot of variety. They can buy the corporate bonds. So I gave an example of just a corporation that came to mind, but there's all types of corporations out there that can issue bonds and there's government bonds as well. Um, so just, you know, here in Canada, it can be a Canada bond a certain year of maturity. It could be a provincial bond. Um, bonds are going to have different times to maturity. And there is that active market, like I said, so you could buy it right when it's first issued and you know the terms. Okay, it's as of today, it's going to mature in five years. But because there's this active market for bonds that you can still buy and sell your bonds in between that time, there's bonds that are going to have all different times to maturity. And then just as they're issued, they have different times. So there might be a five-year bond issued, a 10-year, a 20-year, a 30-year. Um, and then they also, again, to complicate it, because we love to complicate things, they have different ratings as well. So ratings are based on credit quality. And it's supplied by individual risk rating agencies. So there can be anything, you can look at certain bonds. Um, and if you're looking for ultra high quality, then you're likely going to look for something like a triple A bond. So it's triple A, double A, single A, then it goes down to triple B and sort of keeps moving down um, from that point on. And again, that's just giving you more assurances on less potential for it to default. But then of course, <laughs> as you, you know, give up, you aim for higher quality, you're going to expect a lower rate of return, right? So if you're willing to take on lower quality bond or buy a lower quality bond investment, then you're likely going to get rewarded with a higher coupon or interest rate associated with that because you're taking on some more risk. So there's a lot of variety in the types of bond investing as well. 
again, we don't like to make things simple or straightforward. So just like stocks, there's the active market for bonds. Um, they trade over the bond trading desk. So it's not um, like a publicly traded market in the same way, but there is still active buyers and sellers on the bond side of things. Okay. So we're continuing to move up the risk scale. So we're on that last bucket when I divided down the types of investments. And we're talking about now I want to talk about stocks, equities, shares. We kind of use, again, all the same words interchangeably. They mean the same thing. So you can call it stocks. You can call it equities. You can call it shares in a company. So what is that? Let's break it down. What is a share? What is what is a stock? Well, when you buy securities that are stocks or equities or shares on the exchange, you become a part owner in the business. That's why we get the term shareholder. You're a part owner. Um, you own a share of the company. So just like in the example I used um, with Apple and issuing bonds, well, if Apple instead wants to raise money, they can actually instead um, not issue a bond, right? They're, what's an alternative for them? They can issue more shares to the market. So instead of people going, hey, I like that company. Yeah, I want to you know, buy that bond. It could be that, okay, I really like that company. I want to be a shareholder and they can buy shares on the market, on the publicly traded market or as a new issue if they're coming out with new shares, the company. But what it entails is you're a part owner as a result of buying a share in the company and you benefit and the benefit to the company is, you know, unlike a bond, they don't have a specific day they have to pay it back. So if we look at it from a company's point of view, in that example of Apple, they go, okay, I'm going to issue a bond at this percent for a five-year maturity. Well, they know at the end of five years, they have to pay everyone back the original investment um, unless they had some sort of other covenants um, written down and they were able to extend it or whatever. But let's not get that complicated. Let's just say they have to pay you back at the end of the term. Well, with a stock, they're still raising money, but they don't have any sort of conditions like that. They don't have to pay back the shareholders because generally shareholders, you buy the stock um, in the thought that you're gonna continue to hold it. If you do wanna sell it, you sell it back into the market, um, but you don't have necessarily like any sort of specific deadline. The company hasn't been obligated to buy back your share at any point in time when we're thinking just common stocks and shares, okay? so. Also, as a shareholder, you might be entitled to vote. So as a shareholder, you're a partial owner. And when the companies have shareholder meetings um, and things like that, you as a holder and a part owner will also get to participate in that. And again, it's dependent on the share class. But for the most part, as a shareholder, you have that right. Um, as well as a shareholder, you might be entitled to share in company profits that they allocate, and that would be in the form of dividends. So when you buy a stock of a company, it might be a dividend paying stock, which means you hold this stock and when it pays out the dividends, you as a shareholder receive those dividends on your share. Okay, so as a shareholder and a part owner of the company, well, what do you want? What would you like to see? Um, well, obviously you want to see your investment grow. You want your investment to increase in value. And that's what we call like increasing through capital gains. So when you buy a stock and it goes up in value, um, 
that's essentially your return if you sell it at that point um, or you continue to hold it and maybe it moves up even further and of course it can also move down so you know I like to stay positive and we hope for the best and we want it to move up in value but the reality is it can also move down and again that is why we've moved up the risk spectrum so shares are more more risk associated with them than a bond investment or of course a cash and equivalents but the reason you're investing in a stock is because there's a higher potential return on it as well and that's why you're willing to take on more risk for the higher potential return so let's say you bought a stock at five dollars and then in one year time it's trading at six dollars in that example your investment has grown by 20 percent that year so that's that's a great return on investment. You're a holder, you're a shareholder of the company. The company has done well. They've come out with, you know, their their quarterly statements and financial results. The market reacted well. It's moved up in value. So far, your investment has grown by 20%. Um, and another way to earn money as a shareholder is not just through that growth, but again, it's that receiving dividends. So some companies pay dividends, not all do. But when they do allocate that profit to shareholders through dividend, for instance, in this example, let's say they pay a 25 cent dividend on that $5 stock. So as a shareholder, you purchased at $5 and you receive a 25% dividend, that means you're receiving a 5% dividend as well as a whole, being a holder of the stock. So that's some of the benefits and why people purchase stocks for it to go up in value and to be rewarded in other um, means as well, um, most often through dividends. But um, investors love dividends and, and dividends is a great part of owning a stock or a share of a company. But let's talk about them a little bit further as well. Um, just because not all companies do pay dividends, right? So it is one benefit to being a shareholder and buying a dividend paying stock is that you would receive that income as a shareholder. But again, it's it's not necessarily all companies pay it and it's not necessarily good or bad if a company does pay it or doesn't. So think of it from the company's perspective as just how they choose to use their profits. So if a company does pay a dividend, it's just saying that, hey, you know, maybe they're at a different stage in the business cycle and they're a little bit more established. There's not a lot of growth going on. So they have this profit sitting around and they have some options of, well, what should we do with this? And they choose to pay it out to shareholders to reward the shareholders. And um, shareholders, you know, appreciate that, respect that, and maybe continue to buy into the stock as a result. Um, but then, you know, on the flip side, there's companies that are very growth oriented that don't pay a dividend at all, but are still attractive companies to investors. So for example, think of Amazon. Amazon has been a very great investment for people over the years. If people have bought Amazon and held that stock because it has moved up in value. So if they bought the stock at a certain value of, you know, a thousand dollars and then it became 2000, they made that capital gain or at 3000, you know, it's grown even more. So it has added value for shareholders. Shareholders have made money. Of course, it depends on when you've bought it and what price you paid for it. Um, but if you look at the the trajectory of Amazon stock, you know, for the most part, we can see this upward growth. Um, so it doesn't mean that just because it does not pay a dividend that people have not made money on the stock. 
again, still dependent on when you bought it. <laughs> so some people might be down on that investment. So it's not a guarantee. Um, and stocks do go down in value too. So it's not also a guarantee that it's going to continue going up. But again, just looking at it, if you come at it from a perspective, just wanting to understand, well, is it good or bad if a company does or doesn't pay a dividend. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not getting a return on your investment if a company does not pay a dividend. It's just a company has a different model on how they want to use their profits. So someone like Amazon, what this means is that profits and money being generated in the company, instead of paying it out to shareholders, they are probably reinvesting it for the most part and using it to grow their operations. So instead of focusing on um, just paying out shareholders, they're focusing on wanting to grow the company maybe for shareholders, right? So again, you know, this is just, of course, you know, speculation. There's a lot of different factors that are also involved in the decision and, and how they distribute profits and things like that. But again, it's just coming at it from the perspective of, you know, a company that does pay dividends and one that does not, it is not necessarily good or bad. It is just a different model. So a co if you're looking to invest in more of a growthier type company, um, you will likely not expect a dividend payment as a result. Again, depends on the company, depends on the situation, but that's just um, usually how it goes. So dividends not necessarily good or bad they're just there are they are a form of income for investors um and they're you know certain investors they just really gravitate more towards dividend paying stocks so certain investors maybe if you're a retiree um, maybe for pension funds where they're having to distribute a certain amount of money out the dividend paying stocks really make sense because they have these income requirements that they're putting out income as a retiree. You know, you're instead of adding to your investments, you're actually just pulling on your investments at that point and you want some income being generated. So you want to really target those dividend payers because that's going to generate income for your portfolio that you can pull on, for instance, versus you, you're less inclined to want the capital gains maybe at that stage because you you want the income now more so than that gain potential that's not guaranteed. Um, so how does the dividend yield work? The dividend yield, again, in my previous example, if that $5 stock paid a 25 cent dividend, you just take the dividend amount, so 25 cents divided by $5, which you paid for it, and that's the dividend yield, which is 5%. So that's how the dividend yield comes. Um, so it's it's dependent on what you paid for the stock um, as well. That's an important consideration. Um, a dividend grower, so again, companies can pay dividends, and um, the dividend yield is going to change, though, if the company's stock price keeps moving up because that calculation, so 25 cents divided by 5 cents is 5%. But if that um, denominator keeps increasing in value, that dividend yield is going to get smaller for new investors. So it's not as appealing. They might come in later on when the stock's moved up and now the dividend yields, if they're still only paying 25 cents, oh, it's only a 4%. Oh, it's only a 3% dividend yield because um, the stock price keeps moving up. So Dividend grower, a lot of the dividend payer stocks are also dividend growers, which means they actually increase their dividends actively. So they're actively increasing. Again, they don't have to guarantee this. They don't have to, um, you know, have certain rates. They have to grow it by. But a company that's a dividend payer and also growing their dividend is a great sign for dividend, you know, 
investors desiring the dividends because um, it just makes that dividend continue to grow as the price also goes up of the stock. So you can also, as someone who wants to see dividends on your your stock type investments, you can look for dividend growing stocks, which means they're actually increasing the value of their dividend year over year. Um, also to keep in mind though, dividend payments are great and it's great to have that income and for the most part it's pretty secure however there's no guarantee of paying a dividend it's not that if a company starts paying one they have to continue it forever because a company can come to a point where it's not financially feasible for them to do so if they do enter a rough patch for instance what we went through with covid and companies um had you know a big impact to their revenues and things like that. So if a company actually has to cut a dividend, that's usually a pretty bad sign for investors. And oftentimes if a company cuts a dividend, you're gonna see the stock price go down because again, maybe the people that bought it were really reliant or wanting that dividend and it's not as appealing now that it's been cut. Um, and it's a signal that maybe the company could be, again, struggling financially. Um, again, not a guarantee, but that could be one of the reasons why. Um, there's also special dividends. So for companies that don't want to commit to paying an ongoing dividend, they can just pay out a special dividend um, or they can pay it out on top of their regular dividend. So a special means maybe they just have a really great quarter um, or a great year and they have an uh, extra abundance of profit that they don't really know what to do with and they don't, you know, maybe they don't have debt to pay down or whatever for whatever reason and they want to reward their shareholders. They can pay out a special dividend, which just means, you know, a one-time payment, it doesn't mean that they're having to guarantee that they're going to do it again next year or anything like that. So almost think of it as like a bonus. Um, and dividends are paid out on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. So when you see that dividend yield, when you're looking at a stock, um, whatever it might be, when you look up a stock quote, it means that depending on the company, they can choose to pay it out monthly, quarterly, or annually. So if it was monthly, you would take that amount divided by 12, for instance. Quarterly, you would take the amount divided by four. Um, or annually, it would just be the one annual event that you would get paid on. So now that we've broken down the types of investments, we talked about cash and equivalents. We talked about bonds or fixed income. We talked about individual stocks. You might be thinking, okay, now what? Um, how do I know which stocks or which bonds to actually buy then? So now that I you know, get a little bit more of an understanding of what they are, how do I know which ones are the best ones? Well, as I mentioned at the start, I'm not here to give you know specific investing advice, but I think it's important to talk about investment funds at this point as one common way that investors look to get exposure to stocks and bonds in more of... Um, you know, as a basket or more of a diversified way. So if you're not comfortable with selecting individual stocks and bonds, um, of course you can consider working with an investment professional and that's someone who can advise you on those decisions. But again, you know, if it's just we're trying to understand, okay, which ones to buy, um, maybe you're doing it yourself or you're working with a financial professional but you wanna have more involvement or, or whatnot, I think it's, you know, this other category, we kind of broke down the individual investments, but how they're sold is that you can buy these individually, you can buy an individual stock, you can buy shares of Royal Bank, TD Bank, you can buy Amazon stock, um, but you can also buy these investment fund products, which would be more of a basket of holdings. So it's just, it's almost like another way of packaging these investments for you. 
And so I want to take a little bit of time to kind of break down what those are. Again, you could probably have a whole episode devoted to the topic of this as well, and maybe I will in the future. But for now, let's just briefly go over this investment fund concept. So it's it's money that you invest in and it's pooled into the fund. So it's invested into a diversified combination of assets. And it's a blend of the type of investments that I just discussed. So those individual bonds, individual stocks, it can be a blend of those. It can be just a variety of individual bonds. It can be a variety of individual stocks. Um, the funds are professionally managed or maybe more passively. In the case of professionally managed, there's going to be higher embedded fees that apply. Um, think of it again as a basket. So a lot of different stocks, a lot of different bonds, or maybe a combination of both of those stocks and bonds in one investment fund. Um and then further, they can be broken down and sort of the two main types of these investment funds would be exchange traded funds. So those are ETFs and mutual funds. So those are the basic that you're going to hear most of when we when you hear of these products on um, these investment funds, you're going to hear about exchange traded funds, ETFs, um, mutual funds. So both have a place like I don't want to take this time again to sway you in the direction of one or the other I think both have a place and they are a good tool depending on what you you need what your time frame is what your risk is and all that so it's it's not that one is necessarily better than the other it's that depending on your situation one might be a better tool than the other so let's kind of quickly break down just some of the main differences and these are based on kind of me really simplifying the concepts. I'm going to simplify a mutual fund as being more of an actively managed. So think of a mutual fund as a team of professionals that are really, you know, actively making decisions. So they're saying, okay, you know, this is what's happening in the economy. I think we should have a heavier allocation to these types of investments and less to this. Oh, the markets look really volatile. I think we should maybe be, um, be a little bit more risk adverse right now. Oh, it looks like things are going well in the economy. I think we should get back really into more of the growth your investments. Again, these are just examples, but think of it still, a mutual fund, think of it as these people sitting around making decisions and actively making changes inside as a result. So mutual funds being more of that active management. And as a result of that active management, you're gonna have um, some embedded fees. So some of the downside of that, of mutual funds, is going to be that there is a higher embedded fee. Again, the, the reason you're paying that higher embedded fee is that you have more of that active, more of that decision making going on in the background. Um, but some of the, the cons of mutual funds then would be that higher management fee because of that active management and potential for underperformance of the benchmark. So as investment funds, they, they sort of benchmark themselves to um, what the markets as a whole are doing, depending on, on what market, what they're most like. So if they're U.S. investments, they might benchmark themselves to the S&P 500. If the active management, if they're not outperforming the benchmark, then you go to the question of, well, why am I paying a higher embedded fee if they're not doing better than the benchmark? I'm probably better off to be invested in the benchmark then. Um, so that's sort of some of the downside that we see in mutual funds. And again, not all 
do that. Not all underperform. Some very much overperform their benchmark. Um, not all fees are the same. So some of the embedded fees aren't as high as others. So again, there's there's a very gray area here and you want to do some more digging when it comes to making a decision of if a mutual fund investment is right for you. And then some of the you know positives of it would be that professional active management. So knowing there is this team of people making the decisions, um, actively monitoring and changing things as things change in, in the markets and whatnot and in the economy. Um, they offer really low investing minimums. So usually with a mutual fund, you know, you can start, again, it depends on the fund. So, but you might be able to start with a, you know, $100 investment or a $25 investment and you can set up auto contributions to keep putting that much in on a monthly or bi-weekly basis. Um, and again, it's going to give you a very diversified exposure instead of saying, okay, which stocks should I buy? Well, um, there's going to be a basket of them. There's going to likely be 50, 60, 70, you know, 100 plus holdings, depending on the mutual fund. Again, they're all different. We like to make things complicated. But just keeping in mind, though, it's not that, you know, it's not like you're just buying one stock. When you're buying a mutual fund, it's a basket. You have a lot of holdings already within that. So you have a lot of diversification already done for you. Um, so that's a little bit about mutual funds. And then we have exchange traded funds. Also, this basket of individual holdings, um, but again, in more of the simplicity, like if we're looking at them, kind of how they're generally looked at as, and differentiated between mutual funds versus ETFs, ETFs are usually more passive, so you're going to have less of that active management, less you know, fund managers hired to make those decisions and calls, and as a result of that, um, the more passive it is, the lower the embedded cost because it's a lot easier to create these. There's less overhead um, so they can keep the costs ultra low. Um, and again, though, if they get a little bit more active, if there is some active management within an ETF, which, you know, there are all types of ETFs now emerging. And the thing with is with mutual funds and ETFs, they're starting to kind of merge together and some of them are taking on qualities of each other. But if there is a little bit more active management in the ETF, you will see that embedded fee go a little bit higher as a result. Um, something to consider with ETFs is that you will likely have to pay a cost of trading. So because they're exchange traded, they're traded on the exchange, it means that a commission is usually, you know, you usually have to add unless it's in a fee-based type of account with an advisor or some other fee-based setup. Um, if it is not, and it's in more of a, com if it's in a commission-based or transaction-based account, then any buys and sells, there will be that commission attached to it. And again, that's a different rate depending on the firm you're with and whatnot. So there's not a set amount for that, but something to consider um, for the ETFs because they're traded on the exchange. Mutual funds trade over a different um, method. I don't want to get too like into the weeds on that. Too confusing anymore. I'm trying to simplify some of these, but um, that's again some of the things to consider um, with ETFs and mutual funds. So think mutual funds is really active, someone making, you know, active calls on what they think they could happen, what will happen. Again, though, the risk that, that is if the managers aren't good or they're incorrect on their calls and then the benchmark would be better. And then in those cases, something like an ETF and a passive investment is probably a better um, option in that case. And especially because it's going to have that lower embedded fee. 
So that's a little bit about investment funds that I, I hope I didn't get like too complicated there. Um, but I did want to kind of explain, okay, we have these types of investments. We have cash and equivalents. We have our bonds, fixed income. We have our stocks. And then how do we actually get exposure to those? And a lot of the times it will be through the investment funds. Um, you know, they're usually a good addition. Maybe your entire portfolio is in some of these funds. Maybe it's a portion and you have some individual stocks, but they usually play a role um, in investors' portfolios. So it's important, I think, to discuss these types of fund products and how we can put them all together, you know, in a basket and, and create a, a product essentially for people to invest and make investing maybe a little bit easier. Um, so that's all I want to say today for breaking down the types of investments. Hopefully it was not too, um, yeah, overly complicated because I was trying to simplify things and hopefully it just helped kind of clarify some of those words then when you're hearing these words thrown around that it's just sort of, you know, starting to make a little bit more sense in your mind of, okay, what is that? What is the difference between that? Why is a bond less risky than a stock? And, and those sorts of questions. So thank you so much for tuning in as always, and I will catch you on the next episode. I hope you found value in this episode. And because I'm such a proponent of taking confident action, I want to pose a question to you, the listener. What is one action that you feel inspired to take after listening to today's episode? If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Thank you so much. And I will catch you next time.